Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and what a surprise. We are starting the year with an amazing interviewee. We have Dr. Yi Lian, who is interested in researching neuroscience and nematodes and occasionally is a bit of a worm wrangler. Welcome to the show, Dr. Yi Lian. Hi, Amelia. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? Ooh, my job is many things, and I think um, I think I can split that into what is my official job and what is my less official job. So my official job is that I'm a senior research fellow at Flinders University, and my job is very much you know research focused. And most of what I do is sit in the lab and think about experiments that I like to do with my worms. Specifically, what we're looking at now is trying to understand how changes in the brain translate to changes in behavior. And more specifically, we want to know how changes in behavior that come about from having learned something, how that actually is encoded as a memory. And it might surprise you that worms have brains or that worms can form memories, but in fact, they can do both. They can form memories in their little wormy brains. So... We think in the lab that, you know, we love worms. That's our lab slogan unofficially. And we think worms are great, but also we recognize that they're kind of small, wriggly creatures and they're not exactly that complicated. So at the very basic level, encoding a memory can't be that complicated, right? So that is what we're trying to figure out. And I would say that that is most of my official job. Unofficially, I do a lot of other stuff because of my somewhat strange passion for the nematode and that involves usually a lot of talking to people about my passion about nematodes and you know it could be a wide variety of people it's surprising actually how many people find what I do interesting from little children at schools Um, so I I do some school visits and, and talks and activities a lot of that online now, which I think is great because we can access schools which might be a bit far away for me normally. Um, and I do library talks and that sort of thing. And, and, I, and I always love to share my, my worm wrangling adventures. I also do a little bit of work together with the Academy of Science and I'm part of the EMCR forum. And part of that is, I guess, trying to make positive change for people who are early and mid-career researchers. That's what EMCR stands for. And I always say, I always think that we have a long way to go because, you know, fairness and equity in the system doesn't really seem to be in-baked. But, you know, I think recognizing that there is a problem is the first step. And there are a lot of people who want to see change happen. And I'm just one of them. So I guess those are my two main unofficial jobs. And a lot of Stuff that I do in my spare time kind of just comes from my involvement in those activities. So, yeah. That's a lot of different things and amazing work all around. But I just feel like there's a bit we need to unpack regarding the worms because you mentioned a lot of things that I had never thought about worms doing. or I'd never actually thought about a worm thinking. But we, maybe we should start even further back. What is a worm? 
This is a very important question because the what I call the proper biologists out there are going to kill me if I don't actually define what worms I, I work on. So I work on nematodes, which are actually round worms. And if you look at them in the biological phylogenetic evolutionary tree, they are not considered true worms. A true worm is something like the earthworm you dig out of your backyard with its like, you know, segmented body. If you type in worm, that's kind of the thing that comes out in, in the image search. I work on very small nematode roundworms. Their official Latin name is Cenohabditis elegans, but we always avoid saying that because it's hard. So instead of saying nematode roundworm, we just call them worms. They are one of the most commonly used invertebrate lab model organisms in, in research. They've been used maybe 50 years now. 50, 60 years in the lab, um, and they're what I would consider a pretty convenient lab model because they they make clones of themselves, which is pretty awesome, and they have a very compact brain, which only has 300 brain cells. So that's the part of the, the fun joy of worms. 300 brain cells doesn't sound like enough to do very much at all. I'd like to think we I have a few more than that, but... That just doesn't sound like you'd have enough things to make connections to do stuff. I mean, that is kind of one of the more amazing things, I think, about the worm in that people say that it's simple and that always slightly annoys me because, you know, if it was so simple, we would know how their brains worked. And we don't know how their brains work, even though there are only 300 brain cells in the worm. And you're right, you do have a lot of brain cells. So humans have something like 80 billion brain cells. So, you know, we could count to 80 billion, but we'd be sitting here a long time. Although technically I could count to 300, I don't, but it is like humanly possible. So it, it seems like, you know, I, I just feel like in terms of complexity, in terms of our ability to understand things, we can't actually feasibly look at the whole brain of a worm and what the whole brain is doing at one point. Whereas if we're thinking about looking at the whole brain of a human, there's no way we can do that at the level of individual brain cells, right? I mean, we look at it like, you know, brain regions. But in the worm, we can look at individual brain cells. And what I'm particularly interested in is how those brain cells actually talk to each other. So having a small brain is great. It's very, very convenient and probably reduces a lot of like life complexity as well, I imagine. But you mentioned that the worms can remember things. How do you know that? This is a great question because you can't actually talk to the worm and the worm can't like nod its head and be like, yes, you know, you can't give it a survey or something. So what we do with our worms is we do experiments where we pair together two cues and one of those cues is usually something that it likes a lot like food you know worms don't have a lot going for them so you know they either have food or they mate and you know, so food is one of their greatest life joys so if we pair food with something let's say something that they find sort of neutral they will start to preference that neutral cue or we can pair something that they usually like with starvation, so the absence of food, and then they will learn not to like that thing anymore. 
And so that, that sort of idea of the worms learning to not like something can be tested several days after we do that pairing of the thing they like and the starvation. And they seem to remember that pairing for several days, which is a long time for a worm. Especially like, obviously, worms and goldfish are different. But we've all made that joke about like, lol, the three second memory of the goldfish. And you sort of, I would categorize a worm as in there or, or slightly lower. So seven days, that's a pretty significant memory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, if you think about it, that's actually the lifespan of a worm is about three or four weeks. So that's quite a long time, if you think about it. And, and, I, and I presume that some of these memories that the worm make, it's probably because it's quite important for their survival. You know, pairing together a dangerous or food-lacking environment with something that they like means, okay, even if I like this thing, maybe I should not be in this environment because it's dangerous. So I'm going to avoid this thing. So I think, you know, memory formation is really important to our health and our survival. And we know this in many animals, including us. So we've got more in common with the worm than our listeners may have initially assumed. I'd like to think that. A lot of people do ask, like, strangely enough, this comes up a lot when I'm at airports. So back in the old days when we used to travel, whenever I traveled towards a conference, I would always get slightly grilled by the immigration officers about what I do. And part of it is, I would say, I work on worm brains or something. I try to be honest. And then they're like, how does that translate to humans? And I'm just standing there in this immigration queue trying to explain to this nice officer what I do and how the worms are like humans in terms of their brains. So I, I find that like maybe that's like science communication training under a slightly stressful life experience. Especially as you're probably slightly jet lagged at the time and being able to communicate even vaguely like a human, let alone the parallels between humans and worms. That's a sol- that's solid communication right there. That's the training we should all have to do. <laughs> Wow, that would be a very intense science communication course. So you're able to see changes in the worm's behavior after, you know, starving it, which I feel a little bit sorry for the worm in this case, but able to see the memory, like, can you take a snapshot of the brain in some way and like see things change? So that's a really great question. And that's actually something that we we would like to do that's something that we'd like to do in the lab that we haven't really figured out a good way to do. So so let's step back. So the first thing is you can definitely see changes in the pattern of how each individual brain cell in the worm works. So if you imagine the brain cell as becoming active and then being like, you know, turning on when it's active and then turning off when it's inhibited, then you can see these patterns happen in the worm brain in all of its 300 brain cells. And because it it doesn't have that many brain cells, we actually know a lot about what each individual cell does within the brain. So some cells like to smell or sense smells, and some cells like to sense taste and some sense touch. And some things, you know, just connect all these bits together and some of them control how the tail moves and how the head moves and all of that stuff. So we can look at each of these individual brain cells and ask, is this active or is this not active? But of course, that doesn't tell us what the memory is. 
What we think is happening is that it's at the molecular level in one brain cell. So at the molecular level, in one brain cell or in many brain cells that are connected to each other, we have changes in the chemistry of those brain cells. And the changes in those, in that chemistry is something that comes up again when the same environment is experienced by the worm. So the memory is some kind of chemical change that the worms kind of implement when they learn. That chemical change just comes up again and again each time it experiences the same environment. So it's kind of like trying to understand in tangible terms what a memory is, which is quite difficult when you think about it. Like if I asked you, you know, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I mean, firstly, that's a hard question because I always feel like I can't remember. But secondly, like, you you know, you just kind of envision it in your head, right? You don't think of it as, you know, these cells in my brain are like firing and then they kind of remember that toast and how delicious it was. So I guess what we're trying to do in the worm is find a way to make some that kind of metaphysical, intangible thing into a tangible chemical process that we can solve. And like I mentioned, the worm brain isn't that big. The worm itself isn't that complicated. So those chemical changes hopefully are some things that we can solve and identify and profile in the worm brain so that we can kind of identify what a memory is, I guess, in chemical terms. And I think we're all going to spend the next couple of hours uh, lost in terrified thought about what a memory actually is, because obviously it's not like the little filing cabinet in the brain that we like to imagine is what's going on. It's just, oh, I failed to file away breakfast. Are there any sort of hopes that the research that you're doing now will lead into something, will solve something more than just really getting to know these worms? I think so. I feel like the process of trying to understand something that is so fundamental to basically all animals, you know, I mean, maybe not memory, but the process of changing our behaviors in response to changes in the environment, learning those changes and sort of bringing up that change response every time, that process is critical to survival in all animals. And I think understanding more about this fundamental process it will sort of trigger improvements in the way that we think about the brain, which certainly has implications for human neuroscience. But also it allows us to actually develop technologies that enable us to look at the brain in new ways. And, you know, to sort of look at the chemical profile of individual brain cells or to look at how brain cells connect to each other or develop programs or theories about how the networks of the brain work. And those are certainly things that we can apply to bigger animals. A lot of what we we do in the worm in the past, so if you imagine the DNA sequence of a human, which we've known for quite a long time now, but when the Human Genome Project was solved like in the 90s, it was like, yay, this is the best thing ever. But just before that, the genome of the worm, the C. elegans, was solved. And People were less excited about solving the genome of the worm, strangely enough. But actually, it was considered that the technological advancements that were made in the process of solving the worm genome, the worm's DNA sequence, actually meant made it possible to solve the DNA sequence of a human. So 
even though, you know, you might think, oh, they're very simple creatures, or maybe their memories are not as complicated, the process of trying to solve that question, you know, it will help trying to solve similar questions in bigger brains. And I guess the other thing that I always think about is, and it's kind of weird because I get asked this question all the time, and I realized that what this wasn't your question, is how is this relevant to humans? And the follow-up question being, if it's not relevant to humans, then what's the point doing it? And I think there are kind of two responses to that, which is one of which is what I just mentioned about, you know, being able to understand the fundamentals of how the brain works. is It's so exciting. And I really believe that if we're interested in something, we should just do it. And the second thing is, I feel like maybe from an anthropomorphological perspective, just because it doesn't happen in humans doesn't make it not science. And that, you know, we should be interested in studying phenomenon that don't happen in humans. Like, why should we only be interested in things that directly affect us? You know, coral reefs. Maybe if you never look at a coral reef, you don't care about them. But we should still be interested in studying them because they're cool. And they're part of the world we live in. And we love the world we live in. So we should know more about it. I couldn't agree more. Love it. And just because you can't see something, just because you personally may never have seen a nematode, doesn't mean that they're not cool to know about or that our lives can't be improved by something we accidentally stumble upon by researching them. Like, there's always a possibility. And I always tell my students that, you know, you should always try and do the most interesting thing that you could possibly think of. And if the most interesting thing to you is trying to figure out how worm brains work, then, you know, this is what we're going to do. because. In the process of doing that, we are going to be so passionate about finding the answer that we are going to invent new ways to solve old questions. And like, you know, that's our job as a scientist. So I'm excited about that. I do have to ask, what is your favorite worm? What is my favorite worm? So disclaimer, I love all my worms. And every time I... I call them like, sometimes I get frustrated with them and I say they're dumb and I and I have to apologize to them later. So the worms that I work on, we actually work on several different mutant varieties of worms, but you can make genetic mutants of worms that lack specific parts of the nervous system or, you know, chemicals or receptors or you know, bits of the brain. And they, they live okay without those things, somewhat surprisingly. Some of them live a bit less okay, but they, they're fine-ish. We give them a good life. But we can also make what we call fluorescent tagged worms, where we put fluorescent markers into different parts of the worm so that we can visualize you know, their brains as they're just crawling around. The worms amazingly tolerate us putting like, you know, a green fluorescent protein in all their neurons surprisingly well. They're just crawling around with green brains. They seem fine. So I would say if I had to answer what is my favorite worm, it would be the worm with the fluorescent brain. Because every time I look at it, I just think that the brain is so beautiful. Even in this little animal that's crawling around, you can actually put in fluorescent proteins which are sensitive to the activity of the brain cells. So you can see when the worms are crawling around, some of those brain cells are becoming active and some of them are becoming inhibited. And you can just watch the patterns and the oscillations of the brain activity in an animal that's alive and just doing stuff. 
That's amazing. That's like seriously amazing. That's so cool. Creepy, but really, really cool. They are cool and a little bit creepy. It's true. The first time everyone looks down the microscope and sees the worm, they're like, holy moly, it's alive. Also, I should mention, because they are nematodes, they are very small. So we use microscopes to look at them. The adult worms are just a millimeter in length. So they're tiny. They're teeny tiny. I was sort of envisaging that like, you could have one sort of in a petri dish on your computer or something like that, but much, much smaller than that. Okay. We definitely put them on petri dishes, but you know, a single small petri dish can hold like a thousand worms. That's a very space efficient research animal. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm like, give me a cupboard and I can do my science with it. But also don't give me a cupboard. Please give me a bigger lab. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need more space than the worms. What does an average day at work look like for you? Oh, this is a good question. So I'm just going to tell you my average favorite day. (laughs) So my average favorite day starts. So what we do sometimes in the lab is we have meetings with the team or with individual students or researchers in my group. And we talk like a bit of a strategy about how we want to answer a specific research question. And, you know, some meetings are not that exciting, but I find that these meetings are like the most exciting ones because we're kind of like, you know, we've done a lot of reading and a lot of planning and, and to be honest, a lot of trial and error trying to work out specific methods or procedures that, you know, we're sort of good at, but, you know, not really perfect at. And we can put all of that together to come up with like a strategy to answer a specific question about the biology of the brain. So starting out with that, I find this is very energizing because, you know, you know, it's kind of like that's, that's the cool part about being a scientist, right? Kind of finding out ways to answer, answer specific questions. So after that meeting, then I usually go into the lab. So my job, I guess, is um, becoming more managerial, I guess, in, in the sense that, you know, I have students and people who work for me and then, you know, it's my responsibility to guide them in their research and to think about, you know, getting money for the lab, which unfortunately does take up a lot of my brain power. But I'm fortunate that I I still have quite a bit of time to spend in the lab to do my own experiments. So a typical day would be, and I'm in the lab for maybe two or three hours, just picking my wormies, looking at them, saying hi to them, setting up some experiments. And then for the rest of the day, it's usually just writing things up, planning is a large part of my day. And a teeny tiny wee part of my day is usually spent stressing about the state of the universe. Doesn't sound like that would necessarily be part of your job per se. I don't know. I feel like I feel like it is part of our job, don't you think? Like, like if you do like any sort of science, I feel like it's like we have a personal responsibility to take care of the, the planet. Although that is everyone's personal responsibility, but I think as, as scientists, we have like a specific like a power to do something about it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like with great power comes great responsibility sort of thing. And we have the power to do something about it. So I feel like we should. And so part of my days and nights is spent stressing about the things about the world that I feel like I can change and wondering what I should do to change it. And I'm imagining that's where doing stuff with the EMCR forum, for example, might be a good way of working with other scientists and also potentially making actual tangible change to the world, even if it's tiny. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we 
even at universities, I mean, and, and research institutions, you know, there are a lot of committees, a lot of committees, and we all sit around and talk about stuff and try to try to do something. And I think ultimately everyone has the desire to do good. And but it's so hard. It's so hard to make any change which doesn't just seem like just a tiny incremental change that will affect only a very small proportion of our community. So we always say, you know, it's time to the time for like, you know, small changes is over, the time for big and bold changes now. But that in itself is is a huge undertaking and it does require, I guess, changing the tide of the world a little bit. And that takes energy and we are all tired. We are, and there is a lot of inertia heading in one direction and there's a lot of people and assumptions that need to be kind of like wrangled to push them in a different direction. We all need to find the common ground, I think. You know, we do have a lot of common ground. And I think, you know, the thing that the there's always the, the climate crisis and, you know, it's always just hovering over our heads and now there's the pandemic. But ultimately, the, the common ground with all humans is we all want to keep our families safe and healthy and, and happy. And that's the common ground with all of these things. And with the pandemic, people feeling stressed and sad and unhappy is because we feel like that's become so hard. And I guess thinking about climate change and thinking about health and medicine and public health and society is also all of that is wanting to keep our families safe and happy. So, yeah, there's a lot of stress. But hopefully we can do something about it with science. Evidence-based policy sounds like a really good place to start. I, Whilst obviously I'm sad that energy goes into worrying about the state of the universe, there's always, for me, at least a bit of reassurance knowing that there's also some people like you actually working on things that might cause change, and that, that is really reassuring. How have you ended up in this job? What was your path, say, from high school to where you are now? And where did the love for the worms start? This is a great question. I feel like it's one of those things where if I looked back at all the decisions that I made and I tried to pinpoint the exact decision that led me to this point, that wouldn't be possible. It was more of a series of happenings and opportunities that just came up. So growing up, so my parents are not scientists, but they are, and I'm very privileged to be born to parents who are newly middle class and very, very involved in my education. So they definitely, well, by involved, I mean, they really, really wanted me to be highly educated. And this was never something that I needed to question. If I wanted to go to university, it would happen. They would definitely encourage me into, into all of that. So I was very lucky in that, in that sense. So when I was in high school, I was interested in all the sciences. And against the um, advice of everybody, I did all the science subjects, plus English, because I had to do English. But I don't know, for some reason, that was considered a little bit of a gamble when you're 12. But I'm like, I only do school once in my naive sense. So I'm like, I'm just going to do all the subjects I find cool. So I did all the sciences. And at the end of that, my parents really wanted me to do medicine because they're Malaysian and that's just how they roll. It's a good default. It's a good default. I think they could envision the life of a doctor. They, they, the, the Part of the reason they weren't exactly thrilled when I said I wanted to do a Bachelor of Science is because they couldn't envision the life of a scientist. 
And to be very honest, neither could I. I had no idea what I would do with a Bachelor of Science, but but I kind of, for some reason, I just knew I wanted to do it. I just wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to read books about science and write books about science and talk to people about science and like, you know, play with those pipettes you see on TV and wear a lab coat and, you know, do all of that fun stuff. And I guess look at the world and be able to have the power to make predictions about stuff that might actually be true and backed by evidence. And that was just amazing. So so I guess in, in my whole bachelor's degree, my, my love for thing, all things molecular, molecular biology related grew. And part of that is because of this satisfaction that I felt about how genetics explained a lot of things that I had questions about in the world. One of the stories I, I sometimes tell is when I was a kid, there was a book called Why Do Zebras Have Stripes? And I was super excited to get this book because I thought it would explain literally how zebras got stripes. But instead, it had this explanation about how they were in like a long grass environment and that was their natural habitat and it allowed them to camouflage. But it didn't actually tell me how the stripes came to be on an animal that looks like a horse. So, but genetics did explain that, right? You know, changes in pigmentation and like, you know, the patterning of the stripes and how that's why some of them are black and some of them are white. And genetics just explained so much and I absolutely fell in love with it. So when it came time to finish my degree, I said, I, I definitely want to do a, an additional year. And I, I did that in microbiology and, and genetics. And I, I would say the next few years of my research career really were driven by love of science, but also the desire to be around people who love science. When I chose research labs to be in, it was mostly because the people who ran those labs, just they just loved what they did and they, they loved science. And that was amazing to me. So I did a PhD during which I was introduced to my lifelong love, the worm. And part of the reason I went to that lab is not just because my supervisor was amazing, but because I had a minor experience with mouse work during my honors, where it occurred to me that working with mice was just not a Yilian thing. <laughs> it's just... I mean, I, I'm totally okay with people doing mouse work because it's all under strict ethical considerations and, you know, all of these things can have been done and considered and, you know, ethically it's all good. When I started working with the mice, I actually had a little bit of a meltdown and I told myself I couldn't do this. So I really wanted to do science, but I decided not with fluffy mice. So, so that's why I moved into worms. And then once I looked at a worm, I never looked back. <laughs> so from that point it was that was kind of how it all it all happened and I guess from then it was just a series of opportunities that came up I finished my PhD at Sydney University and then I I was at Sydney throughout my entire university degrees I did my bachelor's and my honors and PhD there and then I decided I wanted to move overseas for a while see what it was like but also was too lazy to learn the second language third language the next one was so because I was too lazy to learn another language in English, I decided I needed to move to a country where most people spoke English. So I moved to England to train. Safe for, choice, yep. Safe choice. They speak English there. 
And it was great. I mean, it was, it was very exciting. I think it was one of those moments where I felt that like I was very fortunate that I could move overseas. It was definitely, you know, I had no dependents or anything and I was quite mobile. And my partner and I agreed that I would move to England and he would stay in Sydney. And three years, once I was done with my three-year contract, I would move back in my naive state of thinking that I could get a job after three years. I mean, it's sort of funny now that I think about it. And then, of course, three years passed. I had a great time in England doing my research there. It was a very, very cool place to do science. Um, where I was in Cambridge, they just had a sort of limitless number of resources to do stuff. And anything that I wished to do, any idea that I had, I could just kind of do it. So that was great. But then I kind of wanted to move back. So I tried to find jobs in Australia in science. Oh, that was hard. We shouldn't laugh, but it is. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way. I feel like if I don't laugh, I'm going to cry. So I'm just laughing. I think I was naive to think that I could just get a job when I came back. It was so hard. I think that one month when I applied for jobs and went around Australia, just basically begging people to hire me. I think that was the lowest part of my postdoctoral training. That was the lowest and hardest part. Because I think till then... I had never been discouraged from my dreams of being a scientist. I mean, I felt this sense of maybe at some point someone's going to realize I'm an idiot and I'm just here doing, you know, stuff for fun because I like science and being around scientists. And, you know, at some point people are going to realize that I'm not really that smart and like there's the other smart person sitting at the bench next to me and, you know, that's a real scientist and I'm just a fake one. But that people were just encouraging me to do it because I was interested in it. That was how I felt I kind of moved through my entire research career. It was only when I was looking for jobs that were a little bit more, I guess, leadership related, like anything to do with having my own research team. That was the point where it became clear to me that I was not exactly what people were looking for, or rather what people envisioned was the mold of someone who would have a successful independent research career. I think that's when it actually occurred to me. And maybe that was very naive of me, because when I was doing my PhD and my honors, I would have to say now, looking back, that none of the professors in the department, none of the research group leaders were like me in any sense. So I guess I was naive. But in the end, I managed to get a job. Um, there was a contract um, teaching a research job. And that, I guess, was the first part of the journey towards the start of the Worm Lab. That was a slightly sad segue in the story but I think the reason now I say it is because when I talk to people who are desperate to find jobs as well or desperate to even keep their jobs and they ask me how I managed to get to this point where you know I have a five-year contract it seems like forever and I don't really know I can't really say do this it will get you a job or I can't really say ignore the fact that some people might think that you won't be good at your job just based on some part of your humanity that they don't actually like or, you know, discrimination or bias or stuff like that. I can't really ignore that part of the journey because it is part of the journey. And I think we really do need to do something about it because if we don't accept that scientists come in all varieties, then we will lose out on great people. So I'm kind of afraid that we are already losing out on great people. It definitely looks like it sometimes. 
to come back around though, what do your parents think now? Obviously you are a doctor, you're not the right kind of doctor, but you're a doctor. So where are they at? Where do they sit with the worms? Can I tell you a funny story? I mean, maybe you won't find this funny, but I find this funny. So because my family and my parents and my brother and I are in different cities in the world, so we had affectionately termed family Zoom every Sunday. And we've been doing this since the start of the pandemic. So every week, 5 p.m. on Sunday, family Zoom. And inevitably, we talk about the pandemic. So even though we want to talk about other stuff. And my parents always have interesting questions about the pandemic and, you know, PCRs and rapid antigen tests and vaccination. And, you know, as the family scientist, my brother is a professional chef, so he's not, not really a science person. And so I get asked these questions and I'm, I, you know, it's great that they ask me this and not like, you know, Dr. Google. But a lot of the time, there's a lot of information on the internet and they feel very skeptical about all information, whether it comes from the family scientist or from the internet or from the newspapers or from the politicians. But you may have heard about this drug called ivermectin. People are claiming, some people, not all people, are claiming may do something to improve your chances of surviving a COVID infection or not even getting sick. So ivermectin is actually something which my personal scientific opinion is it will not do anything against a coronavirus infection. And the reason I am so sure about this is because ivermectin was made to combat nematode infections. So even though I am not a medical doctor, I am worm woman. So anything about ivermectin is literally within my expertise. So, so every time my parents brought up ivermectin, I was like, no, you don't understand. This is my actual expertise. And I am telling you, we used ivermectin to like block specific brain pathways in the worm. If you are not a worm, ivermectin will not help you. And we are not worms. That is quite funny. It's a fun fact that I wasn't aware of, and now I am. So there you go. It's used a lot in vet science as like like a pet dewormer or a horse dewormer. <gasps> yeah, so and it's so useful because it is very, very deadly to the worms, but because we don't have that specific neuronal channel receptor thingy that ivermectin actually targets, it's only found in worms. Because we don't have it, ivermectin doesn't harm us. So we could be full of worms if we ate ivermectin. Ivermectin kills all the worms and we are fine. But unfortunately, because coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 is not a worm, it is not actually useful. And this is why I tell my parents, this is the actual moment of my life where I feel like I am equipped in terms of expertise to tell you that ivermectin will not cure COVID. It all finally came together at this one very confusing point in time. Exactly. And there's one specific thing I always start with. I'm not an epidemiologist or I'm not a medical doctor or I'm not an immunologist. I feel like, you know, as scientists, we always try to qualify ourselves like, oh, I'm not a virologist or that's not exactly my expertise. But in this case, I was like, no, no, I have actually written some papers about this. <laughs> Please. This is my thing. What is, aside from, you know, being able to debunk that particular myth, what is the coolest thing about your job? What helps you get up in the morning and go say hi to all those worms? Uh, so many things. I think, okay, what is the coolest thing? So the coolest thing, I think, is that we can actually make predictions about things and try and test them. 
And maybe that sounds like something that's really boring, but I think that's one of the most exciting things about science is being able to make testable predictions about what we do and to actually test them. And those predictions can be very simple or very complex. And I think, you know, if you look at how science goes from like more fundamental to maybe more, you know, translational or, or you know, like a product or, or, or a medicine, all science is just about making predictions, right? So we're in our lab, our predictions are based on the very fundamental things about the brain. But it could be something as simple as if we remove this one genetic pathway, the worms won't be able to form a memory about this thing. And then we can go to work and test it. I mean, that is so cool. So I agree. I think that is the favorite part of my job is that I get to answer cool questions and make up my own predictions that I can test. And that is literally my job. Like, it's not just something I do for fun. Like, you know, it's my vocation. You know, I love it. That is very cool. And it may not have always been an easy road to get here, but being able to do that for five years in a row, pretty awesome. I'm on a contract, so I feel like they can't fire me because then they'd have to pay me out. Please don't tell my employers. But I have a five-year contract. That's the longest contract of my whole life. Congratulations. Thank you. Do you have any advice that you would give to a young person who's considering this kind of career or uni students? Just any advice? I think it really depends, I guess, on what people want to do with their life. And I've always been privileged to grow up with the idea that a job is more than just about earning money. Because definitely sometimes you need your job just for the pure reason that you need money to live. And I've always been very lucky. That was not the reason why I needed a job. I could look for a job that made me feel personally fulfilled. But I guess for young people nowadays, and you know, looking at the world and how it's going, it can feel very hopeless. You know, every time you open the news, there's pandemic news, but there's also news about the climate disaster and the climate crisis and you know how it's like the hottest year ever since ever records have ever been taken. And I definitely think that the climate crisis is one of the biggest issues and challenges that the world will face. The thing that we should be thinking about constantly when we're not thinking about the pandemic. So I guess for young people who might be thinking of going into this career, I guess consider about what you think is the biggest challenge that you could contribute to in some way. If that is something that you want, because we all have, I think, in our communities, a sense of looking out for each other and of society. And if we can do jobs which help each other, even if that job is looking at the brains of tiny worms, we're still doing something where we are helping to train people who are scientifically minded, helping to talk to people about science, just regular science, not like sensationalist science. You know, all of that helps if you look at it in the context of helping people to understand scientific process and how it leads to, you know, evidence-based policy and changes that the world really desperately needs to solve these challenges. So I guess advice is to, to think about what is the biggest challenge that you see and how do you think you can train yourself to help to contribute to solving that, that problem. I think that's wonderful. And I'd just like to add that just remember, even if you feel like the thing that you want to research is kind of abstract or a bit tangentially related, these big, huge, complex problems that we're facing need a whole lot of different people with a whole lot of different skills. So it won't just be you working by yourself to solve this thing and part of teams and teams need to be made of some really diverse skill sets. So 
yeah, you can follow your interest and also work towards solving these bigger things as well. Just like worm brains. Is there any other myths that you'd like to take this opportunity to bust? Anything you just like really wish the general public could wrap their wonderful little heads around? So what's kind of funny is like I sometimes give talks in weird places. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> one of those weird places was a pub. It was sort of like a, you know, you give like a flash talk at a pub sort of thing. But this was one of those things where we had a bunch of us getting together. We did the um, would I lie to you? So I would tell a story and the audience and my colleagues would guess if I was lying to them, if my story was truth or a lie. And my story was about a worms being able to um, change their mind about the smell of food, whether the smell of food was the most delicious thing they ever knew or if they could change you know, their preference for this smell. So based on everything that we've talked about, we know that that's not true because we can train the worms to actually no longer love the smell of food. They can start to avoid the smell of food if we pair it with something which is very harmful to them. So in the process of giving this talk, someone asked me, why is it important to look at worms if they can't smell anything or if they can't see anything? And that is actually an interesting question because if you look at an, or, or any worm, they don't actually have organs like we do, right? They, they don't have ears or eyes or noses. So the sense organs of the worm are actually bits of their nerve cells that stick outside. This is the head. If you have a head of the worm, they're like tiny bits of the nerve cells that actually sense the environment, which stick out slightly. So for those of you who can't see what Dr. Yi Lian is doing, she's sort of doing the like, if you pretend you're from Mars thing where you've got your two front fingers and you poke them out from your forehead and you're sort of like waggling them around, that's what we're sort of imagining the worms to be looking like right now. If you imagine like fingerlings escaping from the front of your head, like if you imagine that your brain cell has part of it sticking out from your head. And that bit that's sticking out is sensing the environment. That is how the worms do it. I guess the myth would be people think that worms can't sense anything because they don't have eyes or ears or noses that we do, but they actually do. It's just like, it's just the tips of the nerve cells inside the worm is sticking out into the environment and like tasting the world. You look horrified, I'm sorry. Well, and, well, but it also seems like such an efficient way of getting to know what's going on around you. Like, obviously, it's kind of limited, and there'd be a distant, like a radius thing going on. But, you know, like when we hear things or when we see things, they go through filters and processes of those senses, and like stuff can physically happen within your ear that then changes how you hear things, all that sort of stuff. Obviously, the little tendrils could get impacted, but it just seems like a really efficient, smooth way of getting that information into your head. Yeah, I mean, just imagine if like all you had to do to taste something was that you just had to like stick your head closer to it <laughs> and then you would be like, hmm. This sounds like a lot of worms actions are making a lot of sense right now. Sorry, this took a, it took a long time to get to the point of the story. <laughs> But important thing, take home message here, people, is just because they don't have eyes, just because they don't have ears, doesn't mean they can't sense and understand the world around them. Is there anything else we haven't spoken about that you would like to take this opportunity to chat about? There's so many things. I think what's sort of funny about science nowadays, and um, I think that's, that's maybe it's the fault of scientists, I don't know, the fault of the way that we um, absorb media nowadays. 
it always seems to me that the science in the news has to be the science that is like super sensational or the headlines are like super catchy. And when we talk to people about how to communicate science, it's always about we have to communicate it about a way that is exciting and engaging. And I definitely agree that that's important because you don't want to bore people when you're telling them about your your research, right? But I guess if I had to say one more thing, it would be how do we kind of tell people who who are not scientists about the way that science is done without all of that sensationalism? Like if it's not a new medicine we've developed or a new thing that will directly impact their lives, how do we tell them about the scientific process and scientific methods? And the way that hypotheses are made and predictions are made and tested and you know, how often it doesn't work. How do we explore that process with the general public? Because I think that's so important to understand so many things. If you think about the pandemic and how little we knew about this new virus and how much we know now just two years later, you know, evidence has changed and so policy has changed. Trying to explain to people how the more we know, as what we know changes, the advice changes, that's just part of science. But sometimes people find that quite difficult to wrap their heads around. And I think that's sort of our fault because we haven't really explained how science works. We more just tell them science when it's really exciting. So I guess if there was one thing I would leave listeners with is to think, how could we make that scientific process just talking about it? part of the way that scientists engage with the media and I don't have a good answer for that. It's a very good point though and that you don't have a good answer probably because it's quite a tricky question and it might take quite a bit more thinking to work out what an answer to that could even start to look like but flashy headline it tells us thing and it's usually like red wine is good for you and chocolate's good for you and scientists say this is true. But how do we then help people understand that actually a lot of science is really just kind of this boring routine thing where a lot of knowledge is incrementally added to? And how do you sort of like communicate to people incremental changes that could change the quality of their lives, but isn't like suddenly you're allowed to eat as much chocolate as you want? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then you know, things like correlation and causation. You know, it's stuff that I feel like we should talk more about, maybe. And maybe, like, there should be a segment on the news where they're like, here's the headline, and then here's the scientist actually explaining how that story was made. And, you know, it's not just your stock footage of people in white lab coats pipetting something, but it's just someone just explaining. This was an experiment done in mice about chocolate. <laughs> and, you know, just explaining how it was done. But for some reason, people don't find that really interesting. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Yeah, there is, in fairness, there is a lot of the routine kind of less exciting science stuff that goes on behind the scenes to get the results. So it's an interesting one, you know, basically a gardening Australia, but for science. Because, you know, like a lot of gardening is quite dull as well. But, you know, we've got a whole TV show about it that people are very focused on. So you need a costa maybe. I don't know. You know, I just started growing my own plants. And I have to tell you, it is a very addictive thing just to watch my tomatoes grow. And I'm just like, you know, measuring the gardening. Okay, but unfortunately, we do have to wrap this up. So I am going to ask you one final, possibly challenging question. Have you got a high five for us? A virtual, you're awesome to someone or someone's who are just doing a great job and deserve all the high fives. I feel I just want to shout out to everyone who had a hard year in um, 2021. I have to say that I usually 
get the year wrong when I write the date in the new year for about a month. <laughs> but I was in such a hurry to leave 2021 that I haven't gotten it wrong at all this year. I just write, yes, January 2022. And, you know, it seems like more of the same, right? So I guess my high five to everyone who feels like 2022 is just going to be another 2021 and who had a hard last couple of years, I feel like it's been sort of relentless. So just hang in there and know that somebody in the world loves you more than anything and we'll make it through together. High five. Thank you. So listeners, you're giving high fives to yourselves. And if you happen to be listening to this with somebody, please give them a high five in a COVID safe way as well. Because as Yilian has just explained beautifully, we all kind of need it right now. It, it's really hard to make a difference between a high five and a clap, but yeah. when it's by yourself, but here we go. And <laughs> <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Yi Lian. This has been a wonderful chat. I have a much deeper appreciation for nematodes than I ever thought was possible. Thank you for sharing. If they were bigger, I would hug them. I can't. <laughs> They're very small. <laughs> Literally squish them and then you wouldn't do research on them because you'd be like, you're my friend now. Yeah, it's true. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Hope you're doing well. Hard work to have a podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.